Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Adloyd. How do we grieve for someone? How does it change and evolve as we get older? My dad died when I was 15 and it took me many, many years to be able to express what I had gone through. So I decided to create Griefcast, a chance to talk, share and laugh about the weirdness of grief and death. But with comedians, so it's not that depressing, I promise. Each time I talk to a different comedian about their own personal experience of grief as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club, this is a chance to talk about the peculiar human process of death. Welcome to Griefcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you so much for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please do rate and review and subscribe. Um, It really does help other people find the show. That's why always going on about it um thank you so much if you've already left a nice review or tweeted about the show or just even told someone who you think would enjoy it 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 really makes such a difference and means i can carry on making it so thank you Um, I'm also doing a Griefcast Live on March the 21st at the Pathology Museum in London. I'll give more details about that at the end of the show. So if you want to see comedians having cheery chats about death in front of your eyes rather than in your ears, listen out for that. This week I'm talking to writer Sam Bain. Sam is probably best known for writing Peep Show and Fresh Meat alongside Jesse Armstrong. Uh, Most recently he wrote cancer sitcom Ill Behaviour, which was excellent. Uh, He's written plays, films, sketches, radio plays, won BAFTAs and is basically one of the UK's most successful comedy writers. Sam came in to talk to me about his dad, who died when he was 10. 
Welcome to Greek Class. I'm here with writer extraordinaire Sam Bain. Is that fair? I was just thinking normally people have like various credits because they're performers and you can't just be a performer. <laughs> but you're a very successful writer. Yeah, I'm no performer. Yeah. I'm a writer solely. Yeah, but it's unusual to have a soul like a soul thing, but that's because you're very successful at it. I think the reason people have like portfolio careers is because they're not so successful at one thing. So it's like, oh, I've got, I'm also a writer and a performer and I do this because none of them are all working at the same time. I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, I think that's a compliment. How long have you been writing for? Uh, about 26 years. Wow. That's since I started, yeah. Yeah. Were you always successful? Like, did the first job go well? No. Well, no, no, not at all. I mean, that's when I started writing, like, at university in 91. Oh, right. I didn't sort of take it seriously until years later when me and Jesse got together. But no, the first few things I wrote were, you know, failures. <laughs> as you have to have some, don't you, as a writer? Oh, yeah, lots. Yeah. And were they sketches or comedy or was it, like, serious? Well, the first thing I wrote was a novel. Oh, wow. Then I wrote a feature film. Then I did, made a short film, which almost destroyed me um, financially and emotionally. That's what short films do. Yeah. <laughs> that's their job. And then me and Jesse wrote a bunch of things which didn't get made. Yeah, the f- our big break was like in 98. We did like a ITV sitcom, which was a disaster. What was it called? Days Like These. It was, it was a remake of the American show, that 70s show. Yes, I watched that. <laughs> Very wiggy. Yeah. With Sarah Alexander? No. No, Rosie Marcel. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now from Holby. Yes. Who's very brilliant. The cast were great. Emma Pearson. Yeah. It was their first job. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, I remember that. Because I used to watch that 70s show and I didn't quite get it. Because it was obviously so American references. And I remember that one coming out. I, I, when I was younger, I watched every single sitcom guy. Yeah. So you started doing, that was your first break, the 70s one. That was the big one. We got flown to LA to hang out in the writers' room. We thought we'd made it, and then the show was terrible and got pulled mid-run. <laughs> oh no! It was prime time. It was on after Coronation. Yeah, Street. I remember. I remember it being a big deal. Yeah, that was a hard. That was a hard experience. Yeah. Anyway, very successful writer. <laughs> we talked about your disasters. <laughs> writer of Peep Show and Fresh Meat is what I feel like. Fine. Is should be added. In case people are like, he did not do well. <laughs> he then did do well. He then did well. So, Sam, who are we remembering today? Well, I guess I, we were talking about my dad. My mum did die recently, but I kind of feel like it's probably a bit too soon because mm-hmm. it was like Easter and we're doing this in August. So, so, yeah. Quite recent. Very recently, yeah. But my dad died when I was like 10 and a half. Wow. In like 1982. Wow. Yeah. So what did he die of? What happened? Oh, well, he had um, cancer. So he was Australian. Okay. And he had melanoma, like skin cancer. Oh, right, okay. But it wasn't picked up here because mm. in the 70s, yeah. it wasn't in Britain. It wasn't a thing, was it? So he went to Australia and they spotted it when he was over there, and but it was kind of too late. And it spread to his liver and all that. And then once, you're, once you got that, you're kind of yeah. a bit fucked. So, were you with him in Australia? No. No, he went over there, I think, to do a talk at the National Film... Because he was a director. Oh, OK. He did a talk at the National Film School or something. Right. And he was spotted there as having it. So, did someone just come up to him and say, you've got it? I don't it. know the full story, because obviously yeah, a lot yeah. of what I'll be saying is I don't know the full story, because yeah. I was 10. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm, like, remembering stuff from a long time ago that I wasn't fully aware of even at the time. But that's what I remember 
being told. That someone had seen it in Australia. Yeah, that someone had said, oh, that mole is not cool. You should get that looked at <laughs> wow. pronto sort of thing. And how long from someone saying that to, like, to him dying, was it? Was it quick? Well, it's a few years, but, you know, okay. the big theme of my dad's death, which is why it's hard to answer these questions, is that we weren't really told anything. Like, I wow. didn't know he was dying until the day before he died. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just covered my face. What? So what happened? Well, they, Did you know he was ill? And he was ill. Right. But my parents basically decided that the best thing would be not to tell us because mm. it would is spare it us. You and who, do you have brothers and Yeah, sisters? I've got one brother. One older. brother. Older brother. Okay. So how old was he? You were ten and a half. How old? So he was two and a half years older. So so still he's still really young in this time. Yeah. Then, really. So they just said he was ill. Yeah, basically. And so that was kind of the most, probably the worst thing about it. Looking mm. back, you know, the death was bad enough, but being kind of not informed yeah. about it was kind of I mean I have a lot of compassion for them actually yeah. now but I think it's like the worst way to do it basically yeah. there's a lot of I've been obviously reading a lot of books on grief and, um, no kidding yeah and I remember the one I, the one I talk about a lot Julia Samuels grief works and she was talking about advice with children and she was saying you have to tell them because in the not telling they feel excluded and even though you're trying to protect, what happens is they feel like, oh, I'm not, I wasn't important to be told. Or I wasn't, you know, somehow I wasn't part of the family, even though the adult's main preoccupation, obviously, is I wanted to protect you from this knowledge. But the advice nowadays is always tell them as much as possible so that they can deal with it. So the day before he died, did somebody say he's dying? Yeah, my mum told us. And was he in hospital at this point? Yeah, yeah, he was, yeah. Did you go and see him in hospital? Well, that's a really great question because I have no memory of doing that. Wow. But I did a bit of research yeah. prior to this. And I talked to my aunt, my dad's sister, who's yeah. still around and lovely Australian, Jan. And she said, oh, no, you went to see him because I was there. It was He was like, out of it, so you kind of stayed for briefly and didn't know what to say and left. Wow. Which I have no memory of. Of course. I mean, it's hard to remember things in your tent anyway. But yeah, I can imagine that kind of just goes, that was a painful, confusing situation. I probably blocked out my memory yeah. somehow, yeah. But you remember your mum telling you? I remember that very well, yeah. So were you at home or? Yeah, I was at home. I was sitting in our 70s living room next to the stereo. Great. My brother was on the big leather Chesterfield sofa. <laughs> and it was kind of odd because she said... Something like, I think Sam's already figured it out. Like it was like a secret. Yeah. And I'd made, I had no idea what she was referring to now. It was too long ago, but maybe I'd said something the previous day. Yeah. It was a weird thing that stuck in my head because I, I felt a mixture of pride that I'd somehow, yeah. as a boy, figured out a riddle or a secret <laughs> and sort of guilt that I'd kind of uncovered this secret which I shouldn't have done. Mm. It's a strange mixture of feelings I remember feeling even then. And I think my brother cried. I didn't... Yeah, it was was just one of those shocking, kind of hard to, impossible to process. So she literally just said, you know, your dad's dying and we're going... Oh, well, 
as far you can't remember, we're going to see him or... Yeah, I think she'd come back from the hospital to tell us oh, wow. what was going on. Did she cry or do you not really remember? I don't remember that, no. And then the next day, how were you told he'd died? She can't remember her coming back and telling us again at the house. We, were, we weren't there when he died. Yeah. That must have been so confusing as a 10-year-old to, like... Yeah. ..just be told this information. And, again, that's what they... All these books I've been reading. They're like, children have to see it. Otherwise, you know, as a child, you're told lots of stuff that doesn't make any sense all the time. Whereas if they can see the dead body, their brain starts to go, okay, they're dead. I sort of understand what that... Because I saw them. I saw they looked different. So did you get... You didn't get a chance to see him or anything at all? No. Well, apparently I did. But I don't Yeah, so you it. saw him, but you don't remember seeing him after he was dead or anything like that at no. all? No. No. You know, Carrot, the whole thing kind of felt like it happened off stage. Yeah. From, like, before, during and after... It was like it was happening in another room. Yeah. Which I can see what they were going for. Yeah, of course, of course. Which was, and they're old school, you know, my mum was born in the 30s, my dad was born yeah. in the 20s, you know, we're talking about a different generation. Yeah. Especially at that time, I can imagine, there probably was definitely not a feeling of, like, kids should know this stuff. I think there was that. Also, I think there was a heavy amount of denial going mm. on. You know, one memorable detail I remember was that my dad bought, like, a year's supply of shaving foam about a week before he died. Wow. Like, he wasn't, by that was, to me, a signifier that he wasn't yeah. coming to terms with it. Yeah, no. So if he's not in coming to terms with it, he can't help us do that. Yeah. Right? It's tough, isn't it? I was talking to my mum just the other day, and she started saying stuff that I didn't remember. And then she was saying that he, <laughs> the week he was dying, in, the week he died, he tried to book a plane to Boston. Because he wrote this book on PR, and it was going to be launched in Boston. And she was like... You know, he was literally saying, OK, go home, book these flights, me and you will go to Boston, you know, the kids will be all right and they'll go to the... And my mum was having to be like, yeah, like, who's going to... You're you're dying in hospital, who's going to insure you? And she was saying as well, like, he did not accept it. So it was really difficult for anyone to get their head around it because, yeah. like you said, if the, if the lead character won't accept it, <laughs> it's, it's hard for that to filter down to the rest of the cast. Yeah, and my mum, you know... She wasn't like a feminist woman who was going to do whatever. She clearly felt she had to respect his wishes. I had a sort of chat, big chat with her about all this about 10 years ago. Yeah, I was going to say, did you then as an adult? Yeah, it was about 10 years ago or maybe longer. And I said, look, it's quite a difficult conversation. Mm. I was like, I think the way that, you know, you dealt with that wasn't great. And she immediately agreed, which was kind of sweet and sort of heartbreaking in a nice way, and was like, yeah, I was just kind of going along with what he wanted, but it was the wrong thing to do, you know. So you're just told from the hospital that he's died. Yeah. And then what did life just sort of Well, it was the classic British shove it under the carpet. You know, we got the funeral done pretty quick. Did you go to the funeral? I went to the funeral. That's interesting that you were allowed to be part of that. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like we were physically prevented from going or anything, but it was just that emotional numbness. Mm. The thing I remember about the funeral was the wake at my uncle's house, I think it was, my mum's brother, and the most memorable thing about that was, you know, I was feeling essentially numb, and I would say Mm. lost, which I sort of felt for like the next few years, frankly. Yeah, 
But this one guy was incredibly kind to me, which happened to be Simon Cadell, who was the um, lead in Heidi High. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know exactly who you mean. Yeah, yeah. And he'd wow. worked with my dad on this show, which is not really remembered, but it was a good show called Enemy at the Door. Oh, OK. He played a SS officer. Wow. In the, is it drama about the real life Nazi invasion of... Jersey. Oh my god. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a great actor and a really nice guy. And he just said to me, you know, if anything if you need anything or want anything, just let me know. And I was just so touched because no one else had really done that. Wow. And it was just a random guy I'd maybe met once at my mum and dad's dinner party or something. But I guess that was what I kind of it kind of stuck out because it was kind of an exceptional no one really kind of reached out. Yeah. In a way. You know, was it sort of more pat on the back? You'll be all right, kind of thing. Or I think so. I was certainly never encouraged to talk about it. Yeah. Or go through that process, and my mum was just too kind of, I think, just shell shocked. Yeah. And she just went into survival mode and just got very practical about everything, which was kind of her way of dealing with that stuff. You know. I feel like. I mean, obviously, we live in difficult times. But I, feel, I always feel like I can't imagine what it was like, like for someone like your mum, where you're in a culture where you're expected not to talk to your kids about it and you're not expected to talk about it. Like, how confusing that must have been. Because, obviously, grief is this, like, thing that bubbles up inside that wants to spill out. And how crazy... I mean, you know, you'll say this is 1982. Imagine, like, if you've been in the four, you know, in the 40s or something. Like, just... All these people who were grieving and never spoke about it. I can't... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know personally how you suffered as a, a, a 10-year-old. How, like, it must have been so hard for your mum to not break down and cry or want or to talk to her kids about it. But to, to in a voice in her head, being like, that's not what you're meant to do. Yeah, I think her thing... I can't obviously put words in her mouth, but I think her thing was like, need to be strong. Yeah. Need to be strong for everyone now that, you know, I'm on my own sort of thing. So did you go, do you remember going to school the next day or anything? Or were you? Yeah, we went to school, you know, I remember one weird encounter with a, a boy who, I don't even remember who he was, he wasn't a friend of mine, who said, oh, I hear your dad's kicked the bucket. Just a very, <laughs> a very, um, oh, wow. I think he was trying to be um, sort of grown up. Yeah, With yeah. the kind of cool slang that he'd heard. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just stuck in my head because it's such a weird expression. It's so weird, isn't it? And you're thinking about, Buckets. I hate kicking a bucket because it immediately <laughs> comes into my head. And I do occasionally kick buckets. And I always think, oh, God, why? Yeah, it's horrible. But, you know, school was, again, this is all with hindsight, but I was like, for a couple of years, I was, at a new sc- I was at a new school for like two years before he died. And for a couple of years, I was like top of the class in like everything. I just really loved school. Yeah. And then after that, I was like bottom of the class in everything apart from English. Wow. And no one really made the connection. <laughs> There might be some, some reason. relationship between this yeah. sudden dive in my academic performance and my dad dying. It was I was just sort of thought I wasn't working hard enough. And did people? Do you remember getting told off of like, oh come on, yeah, bang, put your socks, pull your socks up. off, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was at a public school, like all boys, wow. quite high achieving. I don't think they really had much time for. I sound like I sound like I went to. I sound like I lived in the nineteen forties. This was the eighties. You don't. What I think people don't. Really, what it's really easy to forget is that it's so easy to be like, oh, the eighties, and think of like I don't know, new wave music and punk and people, and to forget that that is yeah. not the experience that mostly happened for people. 
and to forget that I always think this like the like the the decades are actually much similar to the decades before. So the 80s really isn't the 80s till about 1989, you know. But by mm. 1982, it's still really 1975. And 1975 is still really 1969. Like, it's... Yeah. T- um, cultural changes are slow. Those teachers who taught you, you know, how old were they? And when were they born? And they must have been through the war and yeah. seen unbelievable things. So just been like, oh, what? Your dad's dead. Like, One of my teachers was Major Payne. He was an <laughs> army major. He's my English teacher. He's called Major Payne. Amazing, That's a great right? wrestling name. <laughs> so you, there was no teacher at school or anyone who was like, oh, are you okay, Sam, or, or Bane, as I imagine they were? No. Nothing at all. Not really. So with all that, you must have felt a lot of emotion. Do you, did you remember? No. Some, no, you remember it was just numb? I was numb well, like for like probably five years, four years. It must have been in, in shock. Do you think it was yeah. shock as well? numb, shock. Yeah. That sounds like good words. When did it start... Coming like out. melting, yeah. Because I definitely think I was in shock for years. Yeah. And it took me a long time to realise. Well, when I was like 15, 16, right. you know, so this is like five years later or whatever, yeah. I started to obviously make better friends, kind of feel more relaxed yeah. in myself. I'm going to try and explain something to you, which is almost impossible for, for you it. to conceive. <laughs> but in my school at that time, the Christian Union was really cool. <laughs> I can understand at an all-boys school that that might be the cool thing. Yeah, I can No, it was genuinely, like, the place to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was this thing twice a year called a house party where they would take over some boarding school in the country and all go for, like, a week or two weeks. Well, that's why it was cool. They had house parties. Yeah. Yeah. But it was Christian. Yeah. But they'd obviously sussed what's cool, house parties. Yeah. But it was, like, church and discussion groups about the Bible and sort of made up versions of cricket. And it was really fun. <laughs> hey, where is the the, Bible, the book in the Bible about made up versions of cricket? Well, you know, it was a mixture of fun and God. Yeah, they knew how to get their audience in. Play cricket, but also, have you checked out John yeah. and Matthew? And that was a really interesting one because it was kind of, it was like, what was so cool about it was it was the opposite of school. Yeah, In yeah. school, it's very hierarchical. You don't mix with anyone in a year above or below. Wow. But in that situation, all the boys from, who are older were, like, sharing a dormitory with you and hanging out. Like, it was really nice. Yeah. And so I sort of, I sort of started to melt a little bit. Yeah, yeah. My boundaries or whatever. And there was one guy who's actually left the school and was coming back to, like, help out. And I, I can't remember exactly his situation. I think maybe his dad had died or something. But he kind of, like, could see that, you know, there was something... And we used to just have these chats. And that was the first time I really cried. Oh, my goodness. And talked about it to anyone. This guy called, I think his name was Greg. I haven't seen him in, like, 20 years. But I did thank him. Yeah. You know, because it made a huge difference to me, that. Do you think he was just the first person that asked? Basically. Like, something as simple as that, no one had asked you? That was pretty much the size of it, yeah. Wow. He could just see that there was something up. Or I was ready to talk. A bit of both. It was like, you know, he was... He was sensitive to it. I was ready. And so just having a cry. But what was also kind of funnier in a way or more memorable was that then after that or around that time, I would start crying in like random situations. Yeah, because once you turn the tap on, it's hard to control the Like tap. we did this thing in the yeah. evening on those places, house parties called the Sing Song. Sounds oh, yeah. incredibly <laughs> 1930s. And we were singing like, you know, Christian songs or, or not, just Bob Dylan and yeah, Streets yeah. of London. That oh, was a nice. classic. Classic, classic. 
And, you know, it was a really nice, inclusive, supportive, warm thing. Yeah. I remember bursting into tears. I think, it, I'm not sure if it was Streets of London. Possibly. <laughs> it's a classic. It is a it's very, classic you know, the seaman in the seaman's mission. Yeah, yeah. Pretty heartbreaking. Um, and that was really weird. Yeah. And having to sort of leave. But again, it was just like completely on no control of just just kind of like it coming out in this random way. Did ways. you feel embarrassed or did you feel like a bit overwhelmed like oh god what's this? Yeah, all that. Yeah. But also there's obviously crying is great. Yeah. I recommend it to anyone listening. Oh, yeah. It's and it's so a huge good. relief so there's a mixture of feelings. On one level it's relief and another level you feel very self-conscious. Uh, again, I have had a good nice group of friends that I got at that, around that age and I remember one time at a party at someone's house starting to cry and it was like I remember it because you know friends of mine who I still see today like they were a bit like I think you need to I think you probably want to be on your own it's like <laughs> no I don't no I don't but they were obviously they were 15, 16 they yeah. couldn't really deal with it so yeah. they kind of like I'm just going to leave you because <laughs> that's the best thing right but again it's that really English thing I think I've said this before in the podcast that I started crying once and someone was like would you like to leave the room and I thought and I was like what? why and they were like so you can cry. And I was like, no, no, I want to stay in the room because you're all in, I'm crying because I'm with my friends. Like, And I was so confused that it actually stopped me crying. So I was like, why would I leave? Like, I thought, have I done something wrong? Do I need to, like, have I pissed myself? Like, why are you asking me to leave the room? It's just like in that situation, it's like, yeah, bringing up something very random and, yeah. and sort of scare people into a situation. But it was, it was obviously incredibly good for me to yeah. be able to do that, to feel like, relaxed enough you could finally cry to do that yeah and did you feel when you were crying like that was it like you said it's inter- I think it's interesting that you said it felt like oh great I can finally do this well there was a sort of phys- almost a physical re- yeah, release yeah. you know that's kind of what crying is isn't it it's like a physical yeah letting go and what is it it releases a hormone that genuinely makes you feel better yeah like when you cry like exactly the act of water coming out of your lip it has to like get out your eyes I read somewhere like you have to like actually do it and then you're this hormone's like yeah we did it they can feel better now but I think it's interesting that even then you were self-aware enough to go oh this is helping you you didn't kind of go oh just stop doing this well it was a really very confusing it's almost like yeah it's almost like something totally out of control yeah that was the other thing I didn't feel like particularly certainly when I was talking to that nice guy I mentioned Greg um that felt like more controlled situation because it was he was like welcoming and inclusive, yeah. like a therapist or something. But in a random party, it's not quite yeah. like that. It's a bit you feel a bit weird. And was it all boys at the party? No, not all. I had some female friends. <laughs> I just no, I was just wondering because like when I used to go to house parties that were not don't sound as Christian as what. Oh, you the house party was yeah, all yeah. boys. Yeah the, yeah, the other party was. Oh mix, right, yeah. okay, yeah, and I remember. I definitely would like head to a house party knowing full well that by one o'clock in the morning I was going to be in the bathroom with two other girls chain smoking and crying. <laughs> like that was like, and they'd be like a knock on the door, be like, go away. And we'd all just be crying about various things. But like I knew that's my house party kind of thing. Like, right. But I think. A cry off. Oh, yeah. But it'd be for different, you know. One of us had a dead dad. The other one, something awful had happened at home, or parents divorced, and you'd just be in the with your black eye and be like, "Life's shit, man." And that's you know what what I wanted to go. But it's, I think it's interesting, like that you were having this experience. It is 
it's overwhelming because in the next room there's people who are quite happily getting pissed and snogging each other and I'm thinking oh I'm not in that state like yeah. I'm not at a state where this is a happy place like my out of controlness is full of sadness not full of happiness if that makes sense yeah so do you think did you felt like you had supportive people around you though who were not like no 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 apart from Greg apart from Greg Greg sounds amazing he I hope was. Greg is a therapist I don't know I just he, he really was amazing actually yeah that's incredible that he sensed that that you were ready to talk and didn't like take the piss well, or just get awkward I think awkward. actually Cara it's a good advert for Christianity <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're quite right. I'm so sorry if you're listening. Perhaps Christian Unica. Well, people do take, obviously, huge comfort in their face. Yeah, I'm not entirely yeah. joking. I think there is something about, yeah. you know, trying to be nice, which yeah. is a big part of religion and Christianity yeah, that yeah. is a good thing because you're actually trying to attend to other people's feelings and yeah. your own, which actually does help. Yeah, of course. And he was at a Christian camp, so it would have been a bit awkward if he'd be like, ha loser, what are you doing? Exactly. So I would have been like, Greg... That is not what we're teaching here. Yeah. So when you were at school, it was kind of coming out a bit. Did you speak to your mum then or not really? Not really. No. Just, were think, you boarding? No, no, no I was okay. a day boy, as they called it. Yeah. So I was living in East Sheen, okay. near Tom Hardy, I now realise, <laughs> although I didn't know at the time, and going to school in Barnes, which is a nice leafy part of South West right, London. Okay. But... um. No, we didn't really talk about it at home. And that's probably the reason why these feeling more relaxed yeah. with others in other situations with friends or with these Christian guys was so helpful. Yeah. And then when you went to university, did it sort of keep, did you find like as you got older, you were more comfortable to talk about it? Or I've definitely had periods where I've been really happy and then I've shut the door again, like for another two years. It's, gone, it's like, oh, door's closed. Well, you know, I obviously, you know, became less out of control and wasn't sobbing you know yeah. or anything after the age of 18 I think that was the last I remember doing that with some friends but um, I remember uni a friend of mine's father did die while we were there and I made a special effort to kind of like pay her attention because yeah. I was aware that not everyone would be on board for that or understand yeah. it which I'm pleased that I did it kind of inspired a plot line in Fresh Me actually because that was obviously set in Manchester where I was at university oh. Where JP Jack Whitehall's father dies oh, yeah, yeah. in ep- ep- series one. Yeah, I remember that. Because it just felt like like a very odd thing to happen at university. It's not yeah. sort, of, sort of supposed to happen, right? But that yeah. was what happened to my friend and sort of like trying to incorporate that into your friendship life. Yeah, and it is hard because again, it's a bit similar, I guess, when you're a teenager, like everyone else is having a good time and, and doesn't want anything serious in their life. Yeah. So it is tricky. When you saw your friend going through that, did you feel did you start to think of your own, like like you said, oh, what people didn't do for me? I was sort of in my 20s, yes, starting to be aware that I'd been through something rather, you know, traumatic and mm. maybe even a bit unusual. It wasn't until I, I saw a therapist in my late 20s. What made you suddenly w- think, I want to, you know, I'm, you just felt ready or? It was, a, it was, a, I was having some, just having some, problems really but it was the first time I really talked about it was the first time I really understood by her reaction how weird it was that um I hadn't been hadn't been talked about because before that you just you grow up and you assume that what happens is normal right in your family (laughs) yeah because what else you you can't compare compare it it to yeah so I was talking to her about it and it just sort of came up and she was like 
I could tell that it made sense and it was incredibly helpful yeah, actually yeah. to get a sense that actually that was really not cool. And Did that, her face kind of be like, what? <laughs> I can't remember exactly, but it was it was very helpful actually. I mean, I think I would, I do believe in therapy because it's just a very simple way of getting some outside yeah. eyes on a situation which, which from your point of view can be very confusing and hard to understand. Yeah, definitely. So in your late 20s, how long did you have therapy for? Was it just a brief time? or? Um, I still go to therapy. Oh, yeah, do you? I have it on and off, and it's. I find it very helpful. I find, I mean, as I always say, I've only just, I went for the first time last year. I had, like, attempts at it, and I just, I found I just couldn't cope with talking about it, weirdly. But then I come from a family where it was talked about a lot, like, almost too much <laughs> like the intense opposite of like so much talking about wow, it wow that's interesting to the point where yeah to the point where all three of us were like you know what enough talking about it like we've talked about it there's nothing my mum always goes but there's nothing left to say it's like but you but you change you know and I can't I'm still shocked at how helpful it's been like I didn't think it would yeah, help I mean, in the way it does I'm not in any kind of crisis but I no, I kind of feel like um I'd really miss it because yeah. it's someone you can talk to about anything. Yeah. And there's really not many people that, you know, you could replace with that person. No, definitely not. And especially, I think, with grief and death because weird stuff, weird stuff occurs to you or happens to you. And like you said, there's people in your family you just can't, even though my family, we talk about a lot, there's still things that I'm like, oh, I don't feel I can say that. Like, that might be taken as offensive or you know yeah, everyone's got a point of view apart from hopefully your therapist yeah hopefully. who doesn't have an agenda <laughs> yeah hopefully <laughs> hopefully so you went to see her in your late 20s mm. did you then how did you feel when you realized it hadn't been dealt with in brackets correctly did you feel angry or that's a good question i think anger was something that um was deeply buried actually yeah because when when your father's died and your mother's a widow mm. I felt like there was no way I was allowed to feel angry at those people because yeah. they'd obviously been, you know, he was dead. Mm. So, you know, and she was going through this horrible thing of being widowed. So obviously I can't be angry at those people. But, yeah. you know, those feelings were there. And I think working through that was incredibly helpful and not easy. Yeah. Because anger is, is angry. something which is quite, if you're not, used to handling it well can be quite hard to get a handle on but that so I did a lot of work on that yeah and also I think it's really hard because you are angry I spoke to my mum literally two weeks ago and we were both like yeah I still feel angry like even though I've learned to deal with it and I've worked through a lot it doesn't I can still maybe I don't know I can still conjure up how angry I was at 15 I can still feel that like the memory of it, if that makes sense, because it death is so anger making. It's so it's so annoying when someone dies. That's what I think. Mm. So irritating. And I don't know if you feel this. Obviously I was fifteen. I feel like because it's something so shocking happened at fifteen, those emotions are very frozen in that time. Like I can remember very vividly being a fifteen year old in a way that I think someone else might be like, Oh yeah, I remember being a teenager, whereas for me it's burnt in my head do you feel like 10 year old Sam is a very clear because of that thing happening to you or? no the opposite because oh, like wow. I said I spent five years being numb yeah, I was so in shock so the yeah. emotions are the opposite of clear it wasn't until years later that, that the ice cube started to melt yeah, and yeah. then I could sort of start to have the emotional process which I didn't have I was just wondering like did you ever think maybe he's not dead? Did you have that kind of child thing? Of like... No, but I have had dreams of him being alive. Oh, and yeah. they're pretty vivid. 
Wow, yeah, I have. Do you still get them? I did one recently. Yeah, when, after my mum died, I got one. And it's always a thing of like, where have you been? <laughs> How come, what have you been doing for 30 years? Yeah, what have you been doing? My, when after he died, my mum and my brother both had like, these glorious dreams where like he came to them he spoke to them I think in my mum's he was like covered in light and stuff and I dreamt that his dead body was in the porch and we all had a massive row about what to do with it (laughs) and I remember the only time I went when I went to this awful child therapist who bless her was just the wrong thing and the only useful thing she said I told her that and she was like well maybe you deal with things practically (laughs) I thought Oh, okay. That made me feel because I felt so guilty that I hadn't, and angry that I wasn't getting this glorious angel dream. I was getting like, yeah. And what do I get? The B list dream? Yeah, exactly. I got the bloody like the sitcom dream. I got the sitcom dream. <laughs> they got like the Hollywood film version. Yeah. When you said you had that dream recently, was that your dad or your mum you dreamt of then? I had a couple of dreams. One about him. One about her. Yeah, it's kind of amazing when someone's gone. Yeah. And you have that experience because obviously when you're having the dream, it feels real. It's yeah. really quite emotional yeah of course and especially when it's such a long time ago yeah how do you feel about that 10 year old sam now do you still feel oh i have a lot of my god i feel a lot of compassion for that guy yeah yeah poor guy i know poor i feel like you're 10 <laughs> that's so young yeah i really was it was like it was like being shot from a cannon i had no idea what was going on <laughs> and pre that was your life quite happy yeah and... very happy childhood yeah. you know we had a nice uh, house in twickenham a nice garden, lots yeah. of friends, happy memories of playing and enjoying school, all that good stuff. Yeah. And I did feel very loved by both my parents. Yeah. You know, the first 10 years, pretty idyllic. You know, I didn't never felt I was in love. It's just that the way they dealt with the death was just, yeah. you know, not great. I think, I think also, you know, there was a weird thing about, my dad, because he was a freelance TV director, he directed things like Upstairs Downstairs. That's oh, what wow. he was doing in the 70s. And, um, like, we were told not to tell anyone he was sick because he was worried that... About work. About work, yeah. which I think is an odd thing to say to your 10-year-old son. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be down the BBC club much hanging out with, uh, you know, a controller of the BBC Two or whatever. You know what Sam's like? He's really in there. He's such a good networker. Yeah. Make sure he doesn't say anything. But that was very vivid memory because it was like yeah. that thing of a vow of, like, a family secret. Yeah. You know, like, I remember one slipping out with a friend feeling guilty that I revealed this secret. And I think that's a very vivid memory of... Of, of what the kind of the atmosphere was like. That's interesting as well, because I think that must add slightly to, like, it's a shameful thing. Like, death yes. is a bit, a bit not to be spoken yeah, of. Yeah, I think that's very true, yeah. Do you feel, I mean, this is projecting, but like I had, a, again, very delicate, like, lovely house, lots of family around, friends, and then I feel mm. like the rug got pulled up from underneath me. But yeah. But it sounds, like, different to you, because it sounds like, I don't know, maybe you were just in shock for so long. Well, it was a bit like that yeah. because you sort of feel like the world makes sense. Yeah. And you can rely yeah. on people to make sense of it for you, your yeah. parents and so forth. And then suddenly that the table's flipped over and nothing yeah. makes sense and the world isn't comprehensible. And that is a shocking experience which definitely changed me uh, permanently. Yeah, how do you feel it affect? Like, how did it change 10-year-olds? Well, you know, I certainly felt like I had a a slightly different perspective on life to most mm. of my friends because, you know, I'd sort of seen through the curtain into this black hole of death yeah. and what that was like, which none of them had a clue about. Mm. And you can't help feeling a little bit removed. Yeah. But also I think probably in some ways 
it probably made me a bit more focused. Like I was writing quite, you know, seriously from a teenage period, you know, my late teens at university and getting quite serious about that. I think that sense of time is short. Oh, wow. I might not have, who knows how long I'll have because yeah. I'm aware of death. In some ways, it was probably quite a good thing um, motivating me to kind mm. of like do stuff with my life. I've always had that really, I think, that sense of, you know, you know, you don't, you don't know how long you're going to have. Yeah, well, especially when you do someone at 10, I think that's really, I, don't, I mean, you know, I was only 15, but I think 10 is, you are still a child. Also, the writing was a way to process, I've always felt writing was a great way to process yeah. feelings, emotions, things you can't really say in conversation, mm. you can put on a story or whatever. So I think because I had all these strong emotions from my childhood and when I started writing at uni, I'd just broken up with my first big girl, girlfriend relationship and that was a lot of feeling. So that was a great reason to write, to put all the things I couldn't yeah. express or to make something out of it. And when I found that working for me, that was a great discovery. Oh, yeah, it must have been amazing to be like, oh, well, I can f process it here. Because I don't, I don't know. Can't yeah, I think process is probably the wrong word. Process is something you do in therapy. It's more like alchemy. Okay, like you can yeah. create something beautiful and hilarious out of something horrible and tragic. Yeah. Did you ever write stuff and be like, oh, that's like there's a hidden darkness to that? Well, it wasn't very hidden. <laughs> like my first yeah. novel that I wrote was all about uh, death and this character's mother dying and stuff like that. Oh. So, yeah, I was kind of trying to consciously deal with it at times. Did your mum read that? She did, yeah. I think she quite liked it, although I, I, I can't remember. It was a long time ago I wrote it in 94, although I am adapting it now for radio. Wow. Radio 4, 24 years later. Oh, my God. And doing all these chapters, looking at these chapters about this character's mother dying yeah. after my mother having just died is weird. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's actually quite interesting going back so far. Yeah, that must be... Can you see a difference in that person grieving then in that novel because you wrote it so young? Yeah, I mean, it was um, the first thing I ever wrote of any substance. And it has got some good qualities about it, but it's obviously a kind of first stab yeah. at writing. And it's nice to be able to edit edit my younger self. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I think it's interesting that I certainly have this as well. Like, if you've had a big death, I think when you start writing, death just... It can't not be on the page. That's how I feel. Like, if I mm. try and write anything, it's like, um, it's about death. <laughs> like, But then that's obviously you've got this huge, like you said, you've dealt with this huge thing. You've looked behind the curtain. It's so hard to go, oh, well, I'm just going to write this fluffy story. Like, it's really hard to do that. Mm. So your mum passed away recently. Yeah, what Easter. Did, what did she die of? Emphysema. Emphysema. Oh, gosh. Was she ill for a long time? Yeah, over 10 years she had oh, that wow. disease. Yeah. And how... How was that? I mean, obviously, it's much slower death. Did you feel... Did it bring stuff back up for you, or was it...? Well, it was completely different to my dad. Yeah. Because, obviously, there was no secrecy. Yeah. And I was very involved and there with her, you know, in the hospice when she was dying and in hospital a few weeks up running up to that and stuff. So I feel completely unfucked up by it because mm. it was a very real experience. And was that important to you that they were different? Did you feel like... Well, yeah, I mean, I obviously didn't want to repeat what happened yeah. the last time by kind of, you know, not being emotionally present for it, which is not my choice, but that's what happened yeah, the yeah. first time. 
But there's something about watching her die, which it made sense of death in a way because she was suffering really quite a lot. Yeah. And so death felt like, in a strange way, like the natural solution to that. Yeah. Like, what's going to happen? She's not going to get better. Mm. So seeing that process and being present for that physically and emotionally was incredibly important because I could really see and be part of the real process. And I think that was the thing that was most damaging about my dad's death for me was the fact that I wasn't, it wasn't real. Yeah. I wasn't there. I couldn't see it. It was just something that, like I said, happened off stage. Yeah. I remember one time he came back from hospital and I, and he was like in the living room or something else in the kitchen. I said, I'm going to go and ask him how he is. And she said, oh, don't do that. I don't ask. It was like, yeah. and that, it sticks in my mind because again it was like if, even at the time it felt odd yeah i'm not allowed to ask my father how he is yeah but then again i think she wanted to, or the the policy was to protect him mm. i mean maybe they think they're protecting us but i think in, in a way they're protecting themselves from yeah. the reality of what was happening oh i'm sure yeah because yeah. it's just then you can protect if the children because also i suppose with children it's very hard to deny things so if they had told you you might start crying you know, because you're being invited in and, and then they have to admit, oh, it's happening. Yeah, right. Like you said, if your dad was not accepting it. What was it like that last year when he was ill? Like you said, did you notice, oh, he's getting worse? Oh, I knew he was ill. I knew yeah. he was ill. Like he was, you know, physically deteriorating, but I didn't understand what that meant. I yeah. didn't understand that he was going to die or what that meant. I didn't have that concept, yeah. really. And what does that mean? To I, know, I wasn't really kind of about to come to my own conclusions about it I don't think yeah so after you wrote the book and you know you said you you went to therapy do you feel like you have made a peace with that situation now? yeah I do I feel like I've kind of come through a process and yeah. on the other side yeah which is nice and do you think that was therapy or do you think that was just do you think it was more than that it was therapy's been really helpful yeah and just kind of like being open to yeah, exploring feelings and getting more f- more familiar with my own mind, yeah, for want of a better word, and just kind of getting to know myself and accepting all that stuff, and just having that moment of being like, it was okay. It's fun, like you said, with your with your mum. Do you think her death, in a way, has allowed you to finish that chapter? With both of them, or do you think it feels like a very different book? Her death yeah. to my dad's different <laughs> chapters, but obviously, you know, I'm pleased. You know, I was there when she died. It was yeah. pretty dramatic because I was actually in Los Angeles. I've been there for three days, and I got a call from the hospice that I should come back because she probably wasn't going to last very long. Oh man! So I had to get on a plane. Yeah, and. My initial worry is that I wouldn't make it in time. Yeah, yeah. But l- luckily I did. We had, I got back for her 84th birthday on oh. Good Friday. And we had two days with her before she passed away. But there was, for my money, quite a funny thing that happened. Not everyone finds this funny, but I think you will. <laughs> yeah, Because sure. you're twisted. <laughs> Basically, I um, ordered some flowers for her birthday into Flora, like yeah. two days before... I got the call from LA Good son. for her yep. birthday. And I got I had this hair raising race to the airport, got oh, the first plane, yeah. got the taxi, and I was literally pulling up in this black cab to the hospice in London. 
and I got a phone call from Interflora <laughs> saying, just to let you know that, no, it was an email saying that the the money had been refunded off my, all of it wasn't going through. So I was like, what's happening? I called them and I said, oh yeah, um, I'm really sorry to let you know, but I'm afraid the person that he ordered the flowers for has died. <laughs> So I'm in the car park of the hospice. Fuck, literally like... Wh- and I've had this kind of epic journey yeah. from Los Angeles via Atlanta. Oh my God. I'm thinking, oh my God, I just missed the moment. <laughs> and Interflora are telling me. She was really like, the woman was like, really not sure how to put it. So I, I obviously go in, race upstairs and go into the ward because I knew where it was and yeah. everything. And she was up and talking. <laughs> Not dead. <laughs> Not dead. So I kind of, after I sort of say hello to everyone and whatever, and I call into Flora and yeah. go, um, just so you know, she's not dead because I've just spoken to her yeah. and she assures me she isn't. <laughs> and they're like, oh, I'm really sorry. Uh, we'll send the flowers. I was like, okay. That's so great. weird. So then I, I mean, I kind of went fine. You yeah, know. and they sent the flowers, and they they um didn't charge me free flowers. Nice, nice. great, great. But I was like, it was like in my well, how did this happen? So yeah. I went downstairs to the reception. I said to the receptionist, "Did anyone come? Did you tell?" Yeah. And they were like, "No way." I think I think the receptionist actually the words were, "They must be tripping," because <laughs> <laughs> the nice uh, receptionist, and you know, it was like that. Obviously, wasn't the problem. Yeah. And then a few hours later, I got a phone call from my mum's best friend, who's also an actress. Oh, right. And she said, uh, did you get a call from Interflora? I was like, yeah. How did you know? She said, well, basically what happened was that my mum's friend had also ordered some flowers. Oh, yeah, yeah. From Interflora a couple of days previous. But they'd got, they'd had some problem with the order. They couldn't get the flowers that she wanted and it wasn't right. So she got kind of fed up and she said, oh, don't worry about it. She's dead anyway. Cancel the order. She's dead. Bye. She just didn't want to deal with she it. She didn't want to deal with it. <laughs> so obviously, why would that be your? I can totally see why she did it, but why is that your go-to? Yeah, she's dead. Don't worry about it. Like just to get off the phones. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. That's so hilarious. they cross-reference the name. With of my course, because they're good. They're, that's obviously a very good company. Because yeah. this person's dead. Don't send flowers saying happy birthday because we need to make sure that. Oh my god. Who knew the interflora was so like on it when it comes to yeah. like? So that was the the that was the culprit. That's which hilarious. We had, luckily, I'm very good friends with her. We had a good laugh about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did she feel bad? Was she like? No, I think we <laughs> just. I just found it such a relief. Yeah. Also, it was like a happy ending because you know yeah. I thought she was going to be dead and she wasn't. Yeah, exactly. Then. Yeah, yeah. Because that would be the I think that would be the worst way to find out from Interflora. Like that's not sitcom. That's a tragedy. That's when like comedy <laughs> yeah. becomes tragedy of like. Interflora, and then it becomes a sitcom because you walked in the room and she was okay. Like yeah. then it's fine. Um, so you had your goodbye with your mum, yeah. In a, way, in a way that you definitely, obviously, didn't with your dad. Yeah. So it was obviously must have been so important to you to have that. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, being there and being there for her birthday, and then the next day she kind of went unconscious about midday and didn't wake up, and that was so we were there by the bed for about till four in the morning the next oh, morning. Oh. So it was like a vigil. Like a real marathon. Yeah. Um, but yeah, being there was incredibly important to me. Did it, I just wonder, did it make you think, 
oh, I can see why they kept a child away from this? Or did it make you think, I could have, they should have, you know? No, I never felt yeah. that, no. No, because it's not it's not the right thing to do. Yeah. I, I get why. I don't have any yeah. anger anymore to them for that decision because I get why they did it, but it was the wrong thing to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing with death as well, that if you're not there, I think it's much scarier. Because I think when you are there, obviously... It's not nice seeing someone die, but as you said, you also see someone not being in pain anymore. So there is there is this moment of like, oh, I'm glad for them that this is happening. But I can imagine if you never get to see it, then it becomes this mysterious, what what happened? What did they do? How was totally. it? Totally. Yeah. I think everything in life is scary if you're away from it. Yeah. I, think, I mean, for me, thinking about things that might happen is much worse than <laughs> things actually happening. Yes, Because when they're happening, it's right, okay, this is happening, I can deal yeah. with this, I'll do this. When you When it... You know, I'm lying in bed at three in the morning thinking about the worst case scenario. It feels way worse than the actual thing. I think if you haven't seen someone die, yeah, it is hard to, like you said, especially when someone's older and they're in a lot of pain, there's a piece to it because it's like... Well, there's a, you know, there's a... I don't want to break into song, but there's a circle of life. (laughs) Maybe I should break into song. Please do. It's not Um, on (laughs) No, and I think there is a rhythm... You know, yeah. the death is the body's answer to the problem of serious illness, yeah. right? Yeah, Because endless suffering is not the solution. No. And I, I totally, I mean, I totally know what Elton John was talking about. Because there's something, obviously, I think that's it's only in the case of older people. I think if someone is younger, you do feel like the circle is broken and something's, the pain is very different. But when someone's older and they're in a lot of pain and you watch them die, there is this, like, there's this weird, innate human sense of, like, oh, that's what's meant to happen. Right. We're not meant to live for hundreds of years. Like you said, they're in pain, they go, in, and there's something in your body that's like, hmm, yes. Exactly. That's what they needed. They look tired. They've been around a lot. Yeah. How do you feel now? This is my husband has the same thing, like both his parents are dead. How do you feel, you know, not being an orphan, but do you, mm. how does it feel to have, have both your parents um, not with you? Well, I'm not, I'm not like, super happy about it (laughs) fair enough (laughs) but i'm not like oh woe is me yeah like it feels just like part of life really my mum remembered her parents died within two weeks of each other it's obviously pretty awful and she was saying that even though it was awful she said there's a real freedom in a way because you suddenly don't have anyone you don't have a someone to worry about Yeah, yeah i guess that's true um but obviously, I'd rather have her yeah. around than not. But yeah, I mean, I don't feel super different yeah. as a person. It, like it makes sense to me. Mm. But yeah, it's 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 definitely I I miss her. Yeah. When I come back, I came back to London on Sunday, and normally the first thing I would do is call her, and I didn't, and that's weird. Yeah. And you know, birth. I had my first birthday recently oh, without her. You know, those yeah. kind of things come up all the time. Yeah. Do you think about your own mortality now? Sorry, just literally got, <laughs> as you take a sip of water. Sam, how do you feel about dying? Just because you've, like, you say... Is that a threat? <laughs> I've locked the door. Um, no, I was just thinking, because, you know, you said your mum just died very recently, and I think when you are someone who's had death in your life for such a long time, because obviously we must, you must have this, I meet people who are, like, 40 and go, oh, I don't know anyone really who's died, and I'm like, what? How? Who's writing your life? Yeah, exactly. It's like you're going for a shock. Um, But do you then think? I mean, I think about my mortality all the time because I feel like death is such a present part of my life. But are you much more like 
if you have more therapy than I have. No, I think about it. And I think that it's not unhealthy to think about it. Yeah, that's true. I think that, I think there's different ways of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, like I spent um, quite a few years as a Buddhist. And when really? I was, yeah. Wow. And one of the things that I did frequently was a de- meditation on death. Oh, wow. And the point of that in the tradition I was meditating in is very simple, actually, much less uh, complicated than it might appear. You meditate on your own death mm-hmm. in order to really appreciate the value of the life you have. Wow. It's a very positive meditation. Yeah. So when you say med- so you literally hold in your head, imagine I'm dead. Yeah, so the way death meditation works is you, you do that. You, you think about your own death, the fact that you're going to die, you, that you could die today. Oh, my God. I feel you like think my about, anxiety is <laughs> You think about that quite strongly and really bring it to mind. Wow. And then you, you change the subject of the meditation. You think about how incredibly lucky you are to have the human life that you have yeah, and how yeah. precious it is and how amazing it is. So you really turn it into something very positive. And it is quite a transformative, powerful meditation. Yeah. Because it's very true. Yeah. And it also helps you put mm. things in more perspective. Because if you, if you really strongly feel I could die today, and weirdly it doesn't make me, doesn't make me different for you, but it didn't make me more anxious. It made me actually less kind of worried yeah. about the, the trivial stuff. Yeah. Which is, yeah, I mean, I suffer terribly from anxiety. So it sort of, that's what anxiety does. Is it does make you appreciate all the big things at the time, but it also makes you... I'm sort of always alert to I might die at any moment. So that's more a problem. But I think what is really interesting is you said you then change the thought to appreciate the life. Mm. And that's the bit I might be missing. <laughs> so I'm just that's, worrying about that's, dying. That's the crucial next step. Yeah, the step. crucial next step. And thank goodness for Buddhism thinking that through. <laughs> Being yeah. like, don't just think about dying. Then my teachers think about, you know, the positiveness of it. And, but did you feel your Buddhism helped you with... That, the grieving that was still in there? Or was it very separate? That's a good question. Probably. I mean, meditation is very helpful in general. Yeah. I did it daily for a number of years. I still do, not daily. But um, it's very helpful for getting in touch with yourself, basically. Yeah. On a very, that's the simplest way I can put it. Yeah, checking in with... Yeah, and some things, things come up that you don't expect. Yeah. Like when I started meditating, I was shocked at how much anger I had. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't really come to terms with that. Yeah. This was about this was about seventeen years ago that I started. Did you see yourself? Were you someone who thought I'm not an angry person? Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Before. That was why it was a shock. Yeah, it's funny because I I'm an angry person generally. I'm quite fiery. I know. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you see me kick off at scripts, and so I was always when I was grieving, was very angry. And my family are not angry people, the ones left. And so it was very, I found that anger very difficult. So I just find it really interesting, people who have the anger, but in their heads like, but I'm not angry. Whereas I'm like, I've got the anger, I'm an angry person, this is how it works. And mm. I kind of had to deal with not being angry all the time. So I find it really interesting when it's like, oh, but I, what did it feel like when you discovered, you sort of looked under, you're like, oh, it's anger. It was a shock to me because yeah. I didn't, didn't fit with who I thought I was. Yeah, yeah. And it was kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. Now I'm more come to terms with it. But yeah. It took me a while to yeah. kind of like it's like integrating another part of my personality yeah. that, I'd, that I'd shut off. You know, Jung would call it the shadow side or whatever. Yeah. The part you're not really in touch with. My husband's a very calm, pl- like placid man, and he had the same thing. Like he couldn't 
quite cope with how angry he was. Whereas I was like, I can see it because I like I'm such a fiery person. You I was love like, anger. I love it. I love it. I'm like, it's there. And he'd be like, no, no. I'm. And I often think when you, if I ever speak to someone who's just lost someone. They'd be like, no, no, I'm not angry. Everything's fine. You know, it's meant to be. Alarm bells Yeah, ringing. Yeah, I do. I'm like, oh, you're going to have to accept that you... Because it's infuriating that people die. It's infuriating. Even yeah. though you can have a very zen, it was the end of suffering. That's wonderful. There's also the other side of it. Of course, it's like, I miss them. It's not fair. And that... Yeah. Those sides are really linked and have to be... You can't have one without the other. You can't just be zen about it from the beginning. You are, you know... I totally agree. You know, you have to go through a process. yeah. And experiencing all those emotions is not something people generally want to do. Yeah. Because it is really uncomfortable at times, especially if you're English or like me and you've grown up and not really, anger is not being part of the conversation and yeah. it's not really an emotion that's really allowed or encouraged. Then you have to train yourself to deal with that, which took me a number of years. It takes a long time. Yeah. And I think it's funny because although I am an angry person, the like, furious. Furious. <laughs> the, the setup is not set up for anger so even though I'm like the opposite of you like I, I was happy to be angry no one else wanted me to be angry everyone else was like no no how infuriating yeah exactly how even more infuri-? everyone else was like no we're English what are you doing that's not we'd rather you cried whereas I was like no I want to throw a chair and it was like no we're not ready so it, even if you I there's no good side really but you just have mm. to kind of teach yourself I think it's okay to be angry and then try and teach other people who don't get it because you know, in terms of society, or the you know people, sometimes people don't want you to be angry when you're grieving. But yeah, it's un- it's uncomfortable. It's yeah. inconvenient. It interferes with them. Yeah, and it's very it's very confrontational. I think people are happy, like you said, if you start crying, it's like, oh, they're there, that's okay. Especially if you're a woman, definitely it's fine. They're happy for you to sit there and cry. But if you're like, oh, I want to fucking punch something, <laughs> like, oh, uh, no, we don't like that. I think it's all about finding out ways that work for you that are healthy expressions mm. of anger because obviously there's not everyone should punch them <laughs> you know throwing a chair is great yeah. or maybe not you know and Mrs Hughes from German would disagree with you because <laughs> I was at school doing this yeah. So, yeah. so I think you know there, there's two extremes right the yeah. one extreme is you swallow all your anger and you just turn in yourself and that's yeah. really unhealthy yeah. the other extreme is you start throwing bombs at people in the street and yeah. killing people that's obviously really bad yeah. so you have to find a middle ground <laughs> I think, where you're actually yes. allowing yourself to feel the emotion and express it. Yeah. But, like, you know, like, it's it's very different if I was if I was to just scream at you and call you horrible things. <laughs> that's different to saying, Cara, you know, when you said that to me earlier, it really upset me. Yes. And it made me angry and I need yes. you to... That's a very different thing. And that's what I've had to learn. <laughs> I've learned how to express it. I'm still learning. But to to say, I didn't think it was okay to just say I'm angry. I didn't think that was proof. Yeah. So I'd have to get angry and scream. Got it. And now I'm able to go, oh, I am I just want you to know I'm angry. But you don't have to be screaming. That's really important, I think. Yeah, got it. I mean, that's taken <laughs> years, absolutely years. Cause I just... Good for you, though, because it's not easy. I, I remember the f- I was never really allowed. I never felt I was, had permission to be angry. So the uh, first time yeah. I practiced this of saying to someone... I'm angry. I almost felt like the the floor was going to open up. Yeah. Like it was like, I, I can't do this. It's impossible. Mm. But I did it. And you, the more you do it, the easier it gets. And you can do it in a very appropriate way. And people don't look like you've done a murder. Yeah, just acknowledging how I feel, even just to myself. Yeah. Just even to admit that I'm not having a good day or not coping is yeah. is, is, is really, it's so important. Oh, well. Sam, 
Thank you so much for coming to talk to me. It was hey, my pleasure. So, so interesting. I'm a fan of the show, so <laughs> it's you. a thrill to be here. <laughs> well, it's a thrill to have a writer extraordinaire with us. Thank you very much. You can follow Sam on Twitter at SamBainTV. And if you haven't seen Peep Show, Fresh Meat or Ill Behaviour, what you been doing? Peep Show is one of my favourite sitcoms and guaranteed to cheer up even the most crappiest of grief days, I promise. So give it a watch. I am doing a grief cast live, as I said at the beginning, uh, March 21st at the Pathology Museum at St Bart's Hospital in London. I'll be joined by award-winning journalist Dolly Alderton, Radio 4's Gronya Maguire and Edinburgh Comedy Award nominee Ahir Shah. So if you want to see some nice cheery chats about death, come join us. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TheGriefCast or email me thegriefcast at gmail.com. Music was provided by The Glue Ensemble and the show was produced by Kate Holland with thanks to Whistledown Studios. And as ever, remember, you are not alone. <laughs>